Let Me Ask You is a podcast for adults. We discuss explicit topics, sensitive topics such as death, suicide, drugs, etc. Content warnings can be found in the description. And we're not experts. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Let Me Ask You, the podcast. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jake. What's up? And today's guest, we have Samantha Levy, an author a minister, a motivational speaker, and a mother. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you guys. I'm excited about this conversation and all that you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, we've, we've actually been talking about this for a while, and we've been you're actually uh, the first guest that we've been really excited to talk to, so I can't wait, especially from our um, brief discussion prior to this. Oh, you definitely have us I'm honored. On the edge of our seats. So You look lovely, though. Where are you coming from today? Oh, work. <laughs> thank you. I can't tell if I look lovely or not, but thank you. <laughs> no, you do. Highly anticipated guest. We are going to jump right into it. And we usually start, Samantha, by asking a pretty standard start of the interview question. Where were you born and what is your earliest memory? Oh, oh my goodness. So I'm 51 now. My best friend keeps telling me to quit saying I'm 51 because she likes to date younger guys. And she said it's not right because... I then tell them that we've been friends 38 years and it just messes up all of our numbers. So, um, but I am from Bakersfield, California, uh, pastored a church there for approximately 15 years. Um, the earliest memory, gosh, I would say my earliest memory is crawling in the backyard of my papa's house to steal green bell peppers and eat them raw. <laughs> wow. That's a really vivid memory. That's a really vivid memory. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love them raw. I don't like them as well cooked, but I like them raw. <laughs> that was my earliest memory. <laughs> and, and how what was that like? A um like a little suburban home? Do you live on like a ranch, something like that? Bakersfield is kind of like an open area, isn't it? Yeah, so it's known as a lot of farmland out there, and uh, it's also known as Nashville West because I live in Nashville now, and so I found out that Nashville West because it's the country music of California, Buck Owens. Um, no, we lived in a in a community. And um, that was at my grandparents' house. And so my grandfather was actually a battalion chief in the fire department. <clears throat> and he came down with cancer. I was 12 years old. And he was pretty much the only dad I knew. And um, they gave him six months to live. He fought for two years. And he researched um, all the fires that him and I think it was four other men fought together. Because they all came down with cancer about the same time. And he actually set the precedent case in the state of California that their cancer was fire related. So all firefighters actually wear all of their gear because of that case. Wow. Yeah. So he was a very special man. He passed away when I was 14. Would you say that he was, um, as a kid, would you say that he was your role model? Was he who you looked up to? Most definitely. Um, I can say now that children really need the mother and the father. And I've taught for many years. The mother, of course, is the nurturer, but the father is the one who brings the affirmation, the acceptance, the identity. So a father's role is so very important. And we see so many um, one, one parent families and it, it becomes very difficult, you know, um, for little girls, I can relate to them, of course, a lot better. But those But little girls, they need their father. That's where their acceptance comes from. That's where their affirmations come from. Uh, That's where their identity comes from. And so many of them are searching 
for love and that father role, and they end up finding themselves in trouble in so many ways. And your, your parents stayed together for... No, my mother and father, uh, if you want the whole truth, my mother said she got pregnant with me when she lost her virginity. Wow. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Wait, did that um, happen so, on Christmas? No. <laughs> I um, Oh, it might have, though, because I was born in September. So, yeah, not, not too far from... <laughs> yeah. The plot thickens. Yes. So, yeah. So, um, no, my father was like the... Um, the captain of the football team. My mother was a cheerleader. They went to two different schools and, you know, so all of that good stuff back in those days. And, um, but they only stayed married to probably about a year. My mother went through four marriages and four divorces. Wow. Yes. That, that kind of sounds like the opener to a Hallmark movie. Right. I know. I can't wait for the movie to come out. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I know that I grew up with a lot of friends um, and it was almost daunting to f find out that I was one of the only kids in my school that had parents that were still together. And I, I guess I never really inquired about it, but how do you think that influenced, especially your early life, not having both in the picture? Because obviously you said that your mom and dad are, are both important, which I, I very heavily agree with. The mom and dad both have equally important but separate roles so how do you think that that affected you well honestly you guys I went through so much um my mother like I said went through uh three marriages when I was still young <clears throat> and um so I had to deal with several stepdads and different things um and I know we'll get into some of that a little bit later but um it was very hard on me. I think I craved love. Maybe it's in my genes, my my DNA, my genetics. Um, I craved love. I always just wanted to be loved and give love. And I think, you know, feeling rejected from my natural father. He never had time for me. I was never good enough. All of those things. As a matter of fact, on Thanksgiving, I text him. I haven't talked to him in probably five or six years, if that. No, it's actually been more like seven or eight and I texted him out of the blue and I said, Hey, happy Thanksgiving. We love you. And the only thing I got back was, um, hope you're well, happy Thanksgiving, you know? And once again, I was just like, you know what? I'm good. I felt like as, as a young woman, as a child, as a, as an adult woman, I was the one always reaching out and with little to no response. And so, you know, a woman gets into her thirties and forties and she just gets tired of being the one trying to, um, make that connection with her father. And um, so he missed out a lot of things. He missed out on a lot of things in my life. He wasn't there through a lot of my trials, through a lot of my traumas. Um, and so, you know, you, you find yourself frustrated. You, you, you find yourself in bad relationships. You find yourself making uh, major mistakes in your life because you're searching for someone just to love you because you didn't get it as a little girl. That is, that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, I guess what I want to ask is, do you ever like blame yourself? I, I know that you said that you reached out to your dad and obviously it wasn't reciprocated very well. Do you think you ever held animosity towards him or laid blame maybe on yourself for not having the relationship that you craved for, rightfully craved? 
I think um, you definitely do that. I think you definitely, you know, you go searching for that love in others and then you just, you know, you go through rejection when you're dating as a teenager, you know what I mean? And so you start to feel like you're just not good enough, you're not worthy, and you have all of these issues that happen um, throughout the course of your life because of that initial rejection. You feel rejected. And so I think you carry a lot of rejection with you throughout life. And I think that causes responses that don't need to be there if the family is more stable in those early development years, most definitely. I know that um, my mother's second husband, he wasn't there very long, I don't think. And I think what also happens is when you start to go through traumas, even as a child, and I've had to learn this over the years, the way God created our minds to work is when you have a lot of traumas, our mind literally starts to forget a lot of things that happen. And that's the body's way of protecting you from the pain. And so what happens and what I learned through a lot of counseling and a lot of, of tears is you not only forget the direct issue, the trauma that happened, but you tend to forget seasons of your life. You know what I mean? You forget a lot of things because that's how your mind actually protects you from the pain. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff can carry on even into um, late adulthood. Most definitely. Growing up in Bakersfield, what are some lessons that that environment taught you? And was religion a big part of your early life? Um, <clears throat> so my mother lived in Joplin, Missouri, and I lived with my grandparents. So I would go back and forth a lot. Um, there were times I lived with my aunt and uncle. There was a lot that happened there. I'm trying to figure out which part to go to first. When I lived with my aunt and uncle, I was actually molested by my uncle. Um, so I went to live with my grandparents, I believe, at that point. That was something that had happened when I was actually younger. I was living with my mother in Joplin, and she was married to her third husband. And um, she was in church, and I think he was like an elder in the church, and they were married. And I remember them fighting one night. It's funny because I, I have vivid memories of some of the trauma, but yet other parts of my life are missing, if that makes sense. And I was very young, and we were on our way to go to church, and my stepdad at the time they told they were fighting and they told me to lock the front door. We were going out the back door to church. And I remember going to lock the front door and I was trying to ask them, do I put the chain lock on? Well, as a young child, I, I didn't know what to do. And they were arguing. They were like, just lock the door. And I remember thinking as a child, well, I guess this will be the safest is to put this chain lock on the door. That would be the safest, right? And in a child's mind, I was doing what I thought was best. So I locked the door with the chain lock. We went out the back door, came home from church. We were standing on the front porch. He went to open the front door. He unlocked it and it wouldn't open because the chain lock was on. And I remember he turned around and he kicked me off of the porch and I went flying off of the porch, lost my breath, out of breath. I, I mean, I just hit the, my, I fell flat on my back and I lost my breath. And I think it was that night that my mother left him. And it wasn't too long after that she wanted me to have a father in my life so bad that she would take me to go stay with him, even though they were separated and going through divorce. And it was about that time that he started to molest me. And you don't know any better. And I can remember my stepfather saying to me as a little girl, this is what you were created for. Oh my that God. if you get a man excited, it is your job to fix it. And this is why God made you. And I remember that it was around that time, like I said, I got 
went back to California, lived with my aunt, was molested by my uncle. They put me with my grandparents, and he was my safe place. My grandpa was my safe place. He was very protective over me. Um, I was his last wish when he found out he had cancer. Uh, his last wish was to adopt me. And his name was actually Sammy Davis Jr. Samuel Edwards Davis Jr. So that was a big joke. But I can remember him taking me in the backyard. And here he was battling cancer, lung cancer at the time. And he would go out in the backyard to teach me how to do cartwheels. And you know what I mean? He helped me with cheerleading and all of these things. But he was my safe place. So I remember when he passed away at 14 that I had prayed and I had prayed and I had prayed. And I wanted God to heal him. And, and I believed God could heal him. And when God didn't heal him, I remember being angry at God. Yeah. I don't think that I was mad at my natural father until later on in life. You know, because I just, as a child, you just kind of roll with the punches. You're pretty flexible as a child. And at that point, I still didn't know what had happened to me was wrong. And so I had to deal with all of those things. Um, about 15 years old, I was mad at God and I started to, I was in modeling. I was Miss Teen Kern County and doing beauty pageants. And I was supposed to go to New York and Vogue magazine. Actually, my grandmother paid for me to have a portfolio done by Vogue magazine. And so I was in modeling and I was doing all of these things. I was roller skating and winning competitions and all of the things that a normal teenager would do. But I was mad at God. And I think it was about that time that the pain was so intense because I lost my grandfather, the only safe place, the only person who gave me, the only man, I would say, that affirmed me and accepted me and didn't reject me. And I started running with models who were doing cocaine and started doing cocaine around the age of 15 years old. I feel like when you start to get older, you really start to envelop the weight of a situation or the reality of the stuff that you went through. And it's really easy as you start to understand, try to point the finger. So I can understand where you're coming from when you said that you were mad at your dad, obviously, because if I mean, who knows, right? I mean, you are obviously were set on your path and you're set on your path for a reason. But maybe if your dad had been in your life, then a lot of that stuff wouldn't have happened to you. And you've mentioned your faith in God a lot, especially at 14 years old, which I feel like is, is pretty young to hold faith so strong in something. So I was curious if religion had always, um, if you had found comfort in religion, and if you did, um, how did it, did it sway your influence or your opinion at all about religion when you had people that were also involved in the church that exposed you to that environment that also treated you so harshly? Did you ever put those hand in hand? Yes, for, of course. You know, as you become a teenager, you start to, like you said, everything starts to, you start to understand things. And even though you have limited understanding as a teenager, you, you start to put things in perspective, if you would. And I think what I was mad at my dad about, just kind of to, to finalize that, was I, I wanted him to fight for me. I wanted him to protect me. I wanted him to be that man, you know what I mean? As I looked back, as I grew into, into a woman, that was the anger. Like, why didn't you fight for me? Why wasn't I worth you spending time with me? Why wasn't I worthy of you, you know, yes. even though you didn't agree with things or whatever, as a teenager, you know, he wanted more discipline. My grandmother just let me pretty much run amok, which was also very detrimental to me because I had no consequences. 
And so I learned that there were no consequences to my actions, which allowed me to just get worse and worse. As a little girl, being at church with my mother, I loved the presence of God. Even at a young age in this church that we'll talk about later, because I now know it, that it was a cult, but I loved the presence of God. I can remember being that teenager that was so afraid to lift my hands, you know what I mean? But I could feel his presence and I just, I felt love. I felt unconditional love. I felt acceptance. I felt everything that I had craved and never received. You found what you were missing. Oh my God. I mean, from a young age, after I lost my grandfather, Jesus was my daddy. I mean, I still to this day call him my daddy with a capital D. He was my daddy. He was the one that loved me unconditionally. And like I said, his presence, the Bible says in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And there's so much to that because that's what it is. It's in his presence. And I can remember just wanting to please him. That was so strong in me as a young girl, wanting to live up to whatever expectations he had on me and wanting to be daddy's little girl. Yeah. So at 15, when I started partying and doing my thing, and then I remember going to, as a matter of fact, a friend called it Christmas, and we went to Worlds of Fun in Kansas City as a youth group. Well, I've been in California. That was when Dirty Dancing started. (laughs) So I was out there on the dance floor dancing. And it wasn't church right, you know? And so I remember the whole youth group was never allowed to go to Worlds of Fun again, and it was all my fault. So here, once again, I had let God down. I had let everybody down. I let my mom down. I was the wild child. You know, I was the black sheep. And um, I remember being about 15 when I first started dating black guys. That was the first time. I was 15, and my first boyfriend, don't judge me, was 22. You know, when I turned 22, I was like, oh, my God, what was he thinking? But at 15, you just think that's cool. Um, I remember being in Bakersfield. It was still very racist, very prejudiced. It was an all-white high school. But there was always a boldness about me. So if I was going to do something, you were going to know. And so I had this boldness about me that had to be tempered, if you would, throughout the years. And so I remember being at school in this big old cowboy country boy got so mad at me for letting my boyfriend pick me up at school that he almost punched me in the face at school. (laughs) You've had a lot of uh, influential men in your life. (laughs) Yeah. And then I remember getting letters on my grandma's house when I lived with her from KKK threatening to burn crosses in our yard if I did not quit bringing those people to to this side of town. And you know what's funny, guys, is I remember being so bold that I was like, I don't care. I'll go get my friends. Go ahead and bring cake. (laughs) That was just like this attitude I had. But looking back now, that was me protecting myself because I didn't have anybody there to protect me. And it was during those years that I was so mad at God, this little girl that was so in love with the Lord, but he didn't do what I asked him to do, which was heal my grandpa. And so I was mad and I rebelled and I ran as hard and as fast as I could and started doing more and more drugs and um, more cocaine and more methamphetamines. And I remember dating a guy at 16 that he took my car without me knowing and the car got shot up. (laughs) He brought it back with bullet holes in it. 
and I was just wild and I just wanted to run and I just wanted to stay high to numb the pain. We're going to get into the drugs, but I know that our listeners would never forgive me if I let you cold drop <laughs> the word cult and just not gonna, come back to just it. Just get a yada yada past the cult. <laughs> so let's, yeah, yada yada yada, cult, yada yada. Okay. No, let's come back to the cult. So my mother started in this church in California, and then the church moved to Joplin, Missouri. My mother went to church there with her best friend in high school and her best friend's older sister. And they started into this church. And um, my mother ended up marrying her third husband at that place. Um, and then one of the things about this church was he would always state, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. And he would use that scripture to anybody that would try to come against him. And he would call himself a prophet. But I can remember being a little girl um, when my mother and my stepdad, the one that molested me, separated. He started embracing my mother into this group of women. And the women in that church, probably at least 15, give or take a few, uh, were all pretty much single women. And I can remember my mother making me stay in a room because he would come over after church or come over for a dinner, as they would call it. And they would serve him on China and they would all eat paper plates. And these were sisters, blood sisters, mothers and daughters. Uh, some of them, I can remember one couple, they were married. And the woman would sit on this man's lap while the husband would sit there and watch everything. And everybody vied for his attention and they all flirted with him. And I was supposed to hide in the bedroom, but that little bold little girl was always nosy too. <laughs> so I remember peeping my head out to watch what was going on. And did they follow, was this under the guise of a particular religion or was this kind of like a bastardization of like Christianity and he just kind of took advantage Full of Full gospel, non-denominational church. Wow. Yes. And none of the other people in the church really knew the depth of what was going on because you didn't ask questions. You didn't come against him. They pretty much put him up on a pedestal. What he said went. Uh, they didn't go anywhere. They didn't, you know what I mean, unless they got permission type of thing. Yeah. And they didn't, most people did not know what was going on, that these women were all actually uh, sleeping with him from time to time. My mother went through a lot. I can remember she played the keyboards and my mother was a very beautiful woman. And I'm so grateful for her genes. She was a very intelligent woman. My mother was one of the first paralegals to uh, do the do your own divorces. You guys are too young, but that's been going on for years. My mother was one of the first to establish that. She said they tried to put her in jail a couple times because she worked for attorneys for so long. She figured out that she could do your own divorces, do your own adoptions, do your own bankruptcies without having to pay the attorney their fees. And so she fought against the legal um, industry to be able to do that. So I'm just giving you that because that's how smart she was. Now, this man, the, this prophet, pastor, whatever you wanted to call him, would buy up like strip malls and all of these women would rent buildings from him and run their own businesses. Some had a, they would do dog grooming. The, the other ones had uh, vintage stores. Uh, my mother did her paralegal office. You know what I mean? So they all would rent from him. And he would always tell people, I didn't know this until later, that he didn't want them to write checks for the tithes and the offerings, he wanted it in cash. 
And was he the was he the only man in this community? No. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm interested, there were I'm interested in the ratio. And that's what's crazy. He had an associate pastor who was married. Uh, there were men in the band. Uh, but throughout the years, some of those men lost their wives to this pastor. And yet the oh, men stayed wow. in the church. I just, I guess I'm not like super familiar with like cult logic. Was like, did they just like worship this man? Well, yeah, this is giving me very like Nexium vibes. If you're familiar with the cult Nexium, they they had a vanguard or a master, Keith Rainier, who who he collected women. That's what he did. And they believed he was the end time prophet. And so my mother was so smart, she would call him on stuff when he would misquote scriptures. Um, he had them believing. So she's told me a little bit more, and I'm going to put more in my book as I write it. But he had them believing that he was uh, the prophet Elijah returned. How did this come into play and affect with your childhood? Were you wrapped into this cult business? Oh, yeah. As a teenager, I wasn't allowed to date. Looking back now, it's probably because he was grooming me to be one of the women. And I remember going on a date, and I remember my mom and my aunt were all upstairs. My aunt lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs. And I remember taking my date up because I was so excited to show him off and that I was going to the 4th of July fireworks. And I got in so much trouble because nobody was supposed to know. But I remember I was innocent until that time. I just thought this was normal. And I can remember watching them. He would line the women up at the door when he was ready to leave. And I can still vividly see him French kissing each one, one by one. I, I just did like a quick, um, quick search and it, if he believes that he's the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, I, I'm, I'm reading that um, Elijah's name actually meant Yahweh is my God. So isn't that, isn't it kind of ironic oh, yeah. that he would bastardize that principle uh, by making these people look to him as some sort of like false idol? That is so yeah, interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you just were afraid to come against the prophet. Whatever the prophet said, you did. And he would set the women against each other. Like, there's so much that I, I don't want to go into, but he would set the women against each other. And he would tell them if they were jealous, it was because God was trying to get jealousy out of them. And that's so disgusting, using something so powerful to people and using that as, like, a manipulation tactic and hitting people where, like, in their soft spots. That's so, that's just gross. <laughs> that's really gross. Yes. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, as a teenager, this was, I must have been about, well, maybe, I don't know, 12 or 13 when I went to that fireworks presentation with that guy. His name was Brian. I won't give his last name, but oh my God, I was in love with him. And, you know, and I got in so much trouble. I, once again, if I look back today, I was looking for love. I just wanted to be loved. I have always, when I played house, I didn't play with Barbies because they weren't real enough. I had to have a baby doll as a little girl and I wanted to be the preacher. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to be one of the women. I wanted to be the preacher. <laughs> it sounds like coming out of 12, 13 years old, going into, you said you started using drugs at 15 years old. What was the correlation between the time you realized what was going on in that cult and the time you started doing drugs? Did those have an effect on each other? Well, I think like, um, well, my mother was in the cult until I was 19. 18, 19 years old. I think that that all had so much, if I look back now, I would say when I got in trouble 
for being excited about dating this guy and going to my 4th of July fireworks. Here I was, again, being rejected, unaccepted. You know what I mean? Like, it still wasn't good enough. I finally had somebody who wanted to take me out and wanted to date me, and it still wasn't good enough. And not only was it not good enough, I got in trouble for it. You know, then my grandfather passing at 14, and I'm mad at God. I think all of that was the major triggers. I think I could have gotten past my father's rejection had I made it through some of those things. And I think it just set me up for failure, if you would. All of that combined. Yeah, I just ran hard. And I'll tell you, I was so smart. I was a gate student. I don't know if you know what that means out here, but it means gifted and talented education. That's how smart I was. Um, I got my GED my senior year and, and my scores were like in the top 12% of high school graduates that year. I mean, I was just extremely smart, but I just wanted to party. I didn't, I didn't want to do anything else. I wanted to numb the pain. You know, my mother wasn't there. I felt like she chose that man over me. It came out about the time I was maybe 10 or 12 that my stepdad had been molesting me. I just never felt protected, you know, and you're, you're trying to get through all of this. And then I'm living with my grandma who doesn't want to talk about anything because her generation, they didn't discuss, you know, sex or anything. It's just like, we're going to pretend like it's not happening and we don't talk about it. So I don't think I ever really talked through those things and understood how wrong all of it was. Um, my grandma didn't want to talk about the church. She just tried to keep me with her as much as possible to protect me because she knew that there was something wrong. So I, I stayed with my grandparents, let's see, my 10th grade year till my senior year with my grandma. And during that time, I was just running wild, just running wild. And there was no discipline. There was no correction. There was nothing. And so it got worse and worse. When I taught parenting classes, I taught how important discipline is. You know, it's extremely important for discipline because if not, your children don't learn right from wrong. They don't learn rules. And everything in life in this world relates to rules. You can't keep a job if you can't obey the rules. If they tell you what to wear and you don't wear it, you lose your job. If you don't follow the rules and the laws of the land, guess what? You're going to get tickets. You're going to pay money or you're going to end up in jail. And so the discipline of a child is extremely important and how you discipline them is extremely important as well. Do you think that your time or your experience with the cult, um, I don't, I don't want to say like taught you these things, I guess for the lack of better terms, uh, like influenced you so heavily in why discipline is so important. Or maybe, I mean, it could, I guess it could be a plethora of things. Maybe like the fact that your dad wasn't there and you found comfort in these random men that taught you nothing but wrong your whole life. I mean, was there just a, a turning point where you found these principles and morals? And I think, um, well, I can tell you some of the, one of the other things that stood out to me when we were in the cult is when my mother would come against him and question him. You quoted this wrong. What does this mean? Or she would stand up for herself. He would stand her. He would tell her to stand at his keyboard and tell her she wasn't allowed to touch it because she had a lustful spirit. He would call her a horrible mother to the whole church. He would do these things in front of 300 people. And I was sitting there as a child. I remember all of that. And so it was horrible. But as a teenager, I think what it did was cause me to rebel 
and I wanted to run and I didn't want anything to do with God. I wanted to just, like I said, numb the pain and run. Uh, my grandmother put me into a recovery place. It cost her thousands upon thousands of dollars. And you're going to laugh at this, but I wasn't ready to change. And I can remember they let us go to the gas station and we would sneak and buy like I, one of the girls was older or something, but we would sneak and buy um, no dose and smash them up. You'd buy what? And snort them. No dose. No dose. What is that? No dose. Like the things you that, that you don't sleep on, the pills that you take to keep you awake. It was like what we have is the five hour drinks and whatever. The, oh. <laughs> yeah. It was called no dose back wow. then. They were pills. And we would smash them up and snort them. And some of those are things that when I explain to people who are dealing with children that are drug addicts, until that person is ready to quit, they're not going to quit. Absolutely. So drugs started at age 15. And obviously that path led to grandmother paying for this rehabilitation, which I assume did not work. No, as soon as I got out, we were planning our first drug run as soon as me and my roommate got out. I don't remember her name, but I remember us planning, hey, you can come over here and we can go over there and we can do this. (laughs) So along this path that involved drugs, where did that initially lead you after grandmother's house was no longer an option? Grandma's house was always an option. Um, But I remember coming back to live with my mother at about the age of 18. I guess I was about 18. I got my GED while I think I was at that rehab. So thank God for that. Um, about 18, I moved back to Joplin because I'm running. And that's what people don't understand. When you have been through so much trauma, you want to escape, you want to be numb, you want to run. That's just who you are. That's who you've become. You still can't figure out everything that's right and what's wrong and what happened to you was right or wrong. You don't know all those things. You're still so young mentally and emotionally. And especially when you've done drugs, you know, because it, it stops your growth. And so I can remember being 18 and I'm trying to stay sober and I know I'm supposed to stay sober, but you know, I'm, I, I, that was all I knew. And so about that age, I called myself running away to Kansas city and found myself in Kansas city. I just wanted to be on my own. I just wanted to do all these things and ended up using drugs there. And that's where it escalated. And someone introduced me to crack cocaine. And I remember a boyfriend I had, he said, don't ever touch this. It's the devil's drug. And I didn't listen because I don't li- I didn't listen to anybody. I was a rebel. I was bold and I was going to do what I wanted. And I remember being in Kansas City and ended up breaking up with that boyfriend because he wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. And I started just doing everything I wanted to do and met this guy and I thought he was a good guy. So here we are back to, I just want to be loved. I want to be able to do what I want to do, but I want you to love me unconditionally. And so I met this guy and we were getting high and I didn't know who he was really. I still don't remember his name to tell you the truth and was living with a girl that I had met. We were roommates and I will never forget the day or the moment that I thought this man loved me. And we were sitting there in that apartment and he pulled out a gun and he put one bullet in it and he spun it and he put the gun to my head and he started to pull the trigger every time a tear ran down my face. And um, thank God I never received the bullet, but he gained control over my mind. I was petrified. I was scared to death. And um, I just started to do whatever he told me. And it was at that point, I was about 18 years old, that I was sex trafficked and he put me out on the streets. And you're scared. Even though you leave with someone else, you know they're following you. 
you know that they have no problem killing you. They proved that when they when he did the gun. He proved that. And they keep you so high that you're not in your right mind. How long did, did that persist? Well, thank God. I want to say I was out there for maybe a week, which doesn't sound like very long. But at that time, it feels like it's forever. I mean, it still happened to it you. That like just because it was for a week doesn't mean it, it invalidates your experience. It's You could have been out there for 37 yeah. minutes, and that's still traumatizing. Extremely. Glad you um, came out on top of that. That's wow. Well, I remember he passed out, and I don't know what happened. I guess I wasn't high, and I was still awake. And I'm just going to say now, like, it was only the grace of God. It was literally the grace of God. And when I look back over my life, my whole life, there could have been so much worse that happened to me. I could have been through so much worse, you know, and I look back and I'm so grateful because God salvaged my life and brought me to this age where I now have a story to help so many people. And so I remember I left and I remember walking back to my apartment and um, I remember getting there uh, back to my, to my little apartment, my little house. It was like a small house that I lived in, not even an apartment. It was just a small little duplex, I think. And I remember coming inside and uh, this will get pretty graphic, but I remember the pipe I had. And if you've never been addicted to drugs, you can't even imagine what it does to you physically. It's like everything in you has to have it. If somebody smokes cigarettes, they know I've got to have my nicotine. Um, if someone's addicted to sugar, you know what I mean? It's, it's minimal compared to what these things, how much power this has over you. And I remember thinking, I don't even know how to get the drugs that's in my pipe out of it. I don't know how to do it. And I just knew I needed more drugs. Like, Everything in me was like, I've got to go get high. And I knew that there were girls that were um, prostitutes down the street. And I remember thinking, if I can just get down there to them, they can tell me how to, you know, fix my pipe or, you know what I mean? Something like, I just got to get down there to them. And it's so sad to talk about that now because you don't realize how much control that has over you when you're in the midst of it. All you can think about is that next fix. And I got down there and I'm talking to them and they're trying to tell me what to do and whatever. And a car pulled up and it was a John. And he said, will you come go with me? And I'll never forget the thoughts that went through my head. I've already done it. At least I'd get my own money and I can go get some drugs. Is, is John? I mean, I've already done it. What's the worst that can happen? At least I'm doing it for me. Uh, is right? John like a, a phrase? Is that like a, a slang term for something? A John would be um, um, somebody that's looking to turn a trick. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, somebody that's looking for a prostitute. Okay. I got you. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that. This is going to sound like a really morbid question, but just for curiosity's sake, can can I know what your like drug of choice was? Like at the time, what your favorite? That one was crack cocaine. Crack cocaine. Thank God I was afraid of needles because I never did heroin, but crack cocaine. What was it about crack cocaine? Um... It was such a high that it took you to a place where you couldn't even think. I can't even explain what it does to you physically, mentally. You don't have any feelings. That's the thing about methamphetamines, cocaine, crack cocaine. You feel like you're in control. You feel like nobody can hurt you. You feel bold. You feel strong. You know what I mean? Like So all of those things that had happened to me as a child were still there. And what I've learned recently, I was talking to some people that are 
have been doing a lot of research and stuff. And the best way I can give it to you is the way they gave to me. Your body is a storehouse for emotions. So a lot of disease, cancer, diabetes, all of these things um, probably stem from emotions that you never dealt with. Physical and, and mental well-being, I, I believe, go very hand in hand. You got it. And so the way they explain it is it's literally a storehouse for emotions. And I love the way that it was a very basic. If you're in traffic and you've got to get somewhere, what do, what do we naturally do? We go, that's your emotion for that situation. But guess what? You release the emotion. When a child is molested, you know, not to mention everything I went through as a teenager because of the thought and the words that my stepdad put in me, this is what you were made for. So going through all those teenage years, that's what I believed. So if I'm out on a date as if at 15, 16, and the guy gets excited, it's my job. It's my duty because this is why God made me. That little thought causes so many responses in life. And yet you don't want to do something, but you're doing it. And all of those emotions you're storing in your storehouse. And you never process through it. And it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I'm hearing everything that you're saying. But what's what's really interesting is, is just going back to um, drugs real quick. I know that's kind of the the <laughs> the topic. It's I think it's so fascinating that all the things that were stripped of you as a child and a teenager, like you suddenly found found in drugs, like you were suddenly empowered with all the things that you never had in drugs. And it's almost it's almost like. I can't blame you for wanting to do those things because you were literally like on top of the world. You, you had this power that was so far from your reach for so long that now all of a sudden, like here you are on top of the world, like no one can stop you. I'm obviously yeah. glad that you didn't fall further into that hole, but it's just, it's just, it's so fascinating that you didn't do it just to do it. Like you, there was a very strong motivation behind doing it. Oh yes. It made me feel everything I wanted to feel, accepted and powerful and empowered and, you know, beautiful. Even though you're looking in the mirror and you don't look beautiful, you know, you feel like you are. And yeah, it is, it's a tangled web that we weave because we've been deceived. You know, I like to tell people in church, there's a reason God calls himself the most high God, because the enemy gives us the counterfeit to make us believe that it's better than the real deal. And we don't realize all you've had is the counterfeit because he is the one that's going to give you complete acceptance, complete all of the affirmations. Um, one of the, one of the things that I do so often is have women, when I do a women's retreat, sit down and write a love letter and we, we talk about hearing the voice of the Lord because there's scripture that says, my sheep know my voice, not just my word, but my voice. That's a major in the Bible. That means that he's speaking. My sheep know my voice and a stranger's voice they will not follow. So I love to train people and equip people to hear the voice of the Lord. Because if he can speak and say, let there be light and there was light. How powerful is his voice? And when he begins to speak to you, because you've got to imagine, I was mad. 
I was mad at the prophet for not praying for my grandfather to be healed. I was mad at my mother for not bringing my grandfather out there to be healed. I was mad at God for not healing him because I prayed and he didn't do what I asked. I had so much anger and so much resentment, you know, and like you said, that it was powerful what you said. Drugs gave me everything I was looking for, but I had no clue it was the counterfeit. I, I have taught this for years now, and mind you, I have, let's see, my son is 26. I have almost 28 years sober. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's huge. Almost 28 years. Yeah, thank you. And I've sat in rooms full of piles of cocaine, and it doesn't even faze me. I have no desire for it at all. Thank you, Lord. We found our way through the drugs. What was the path that ultimately led yeah. to sober life? Well, let me tell you what happened. So I got picked up by that guy. I decided, hey, this is for me. I'm free from this other guy. He's not with me. I can keep the money. I can go get high on my own now, right? That was the thoughts that went through my head because I just was craving another fix. I got in the car and he was an undercover cop. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a I twist. guess that's one way to do it. <laughs> that's one way to do it. What? Yeah. Yeah. Now you see why I say it was God's way of protecting God me. God said someone's got to stop her. Was, yeah. So they put me in jail. I found out I was pregnant. Oh, while oh I was my pregnant. God. They called my mother and they said to, to my mother, if you will come and get her and escort her out of town, but you will need a police escort. Um, the people, that, that guy, he was part of one of the largest international rings for drugs and prostitution. So they knew I had been sex trafficked. Um, and they told her to come get me. Wait, was the baby, w were you pregnant with a, did that happen while you were sex trafficked? No. So I was already pregnant. Um, yeah, I was already pregnant okay. and didn't know it. Didn't know it because I was still partying. It just wasn't as bad yeah. as it got when he took me out on the streets, but I was still partying. And so I know who my son's father is. He's never been in his life, but I know who my son's father is. So my mother comes to pick me up. They escort me to my duplex. Remember, I escaped. Are you ready for this? I don't know. <laughs> they had shot up my house and threw cherry bombs at it, which never exploded, thank God. And they had gone in and they stole my, stole everything. But one of the main things they stole was my pictures in that Vogue magazine portfolio I had. They stole my whole portfolio. Yes, man. Let me be honest with you. I was, I was not ready for that. Absolutely yeah. not. I wasn't, they stole my whole portfolio. I wasn't prepared. And I think the reason that they stole that was so that they could find me because they were afraid I was going to tell on them. But what they didn't oh, know, no they doubt. kept me so high, I didn't even, didn't even know their name. I don't doubt that. So my mother takes me back to Joplin, Missouri, puts me in rehab, you know what I mean? Like, actually has me in meetings, and I get sober for the rest of my pregnancy. I was probably about two months along at that point, maybe three, I guess. And um, she got in trouble over the pulpit for coming to get me out of jail without asking the quote-unquote prophet. Is that what led to her ending her relationship with the cult? Yep. I remember her coming out of her office from talking to him, coming out of the office complex, and I was in the car, and she was crying like I've never seen my mother cry. My mother was a praying woman, but I've never seen her like this. And he had told her, because I was dating black men, that I was going to die with AIDS. And she was just beside herself. And here goes this bold 18-year-old. I was like, take me back. You take me in there right now. I'm going to tell him what I think of him, you know? <laughs> you know, because I had gained boldness on the street. Absolutely. But once again, you hit the nail on the head. 
that drug makes you feel like you can do anything. You can accomplish anything. You can conquer anything. You know, you're not afraid anymore. So that little girl who was so afraid of everything because I never got the affirmation, the identity from my father and everything was taken from me. But you know, something else is even, even through the drugs and everything that you went through, it, it seems like even while you were high, you maintain this insane um, faith in God. And I personally have never been religious and there's always humor in everything that I, I hold that belief, but I will never downright bash somebody's belief in a religion because it is absolutely insane to me, regardless of the truth in it, the absolute unbridled strength that it gives people. It's I, 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 it's, it's just it's crazy yeah. to me that you were able to push through all that literally because of your faith in God. Yeah. And I don't even think that I was calling on him in that time. But looking back, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. I would say that looking back, he protected me when I couldn't protect myself. You know, and people say, oh, my God, what God would allow you to go through all of that. But you know what? A lot of it I put myself through. But I can also say that the devil's not bigger than God. And so I, I believe that he entrusts some of the greatest battles to his strongest warriors. And all that I've been through, somebody said, would you go through everything you went through again? I said, I would. Because it's made me who I am today. Yeah. I'm courageous. I'm bold. I'm an overcomer. I'm more than a conqueror. When I think I can't do something, I look back at weighing less than 100 pounds. And I know we've not met in person, but I'm not heavy now. You know what I mean? And I weighed less than 100 pounds. I was like skin and bones, you know. And I look back at that and I'm like, if you can conquer that, if God can empower you to overcome that, you can do anything. There are people that I can talk to. I fast forward, I was, I couldn't minister in Tennessee. They didn't like women preachers. And so somebody said, would you go minister to the girls in jail? So I was at a jail for over a year, almost two years ministering to the drug addicts. The detective there said, I've been here almost 30 years and I have never seen the revolving door shut down like it has since you came here. But I could meet them on their level. I could tell them. We, I would tell stories of what I went through and different things. They could relate to me. And then I would tell them. But what I want you to see is the person that I am now. And know that no matter how bad you've gotten, no matter how far down you were, who I am today is available to you to become everything that you want to be. So I became a living testimony, an example of what God could do. You, you're obviously a very emotionally intelligent person and you still hold this very high regard in your faith. Where did you gain that? Because people don't just become emotionally intelligent overnight. You have to learn that. I don't know. I would say it's through everything I've been through. I mean, I've got street smarts as well as intelligence, you know, book knowledge, because like I said, I was extremely intelligent. So I would say I've got the best of both worlds, where a lot of people are book smart, but they don't know anything about common sense or street knowledge or any of that. I'm blessed that I got to see both sides. So I'm able to relate to a lot of people and understand so many things. Coming out of rehab into your newly found sober life, where did that take you on your journey? So my mother ended up leaving the church and she was not allowed to talk to anyone. No one would speak to her. She'd be in a grocery store, her best friend from high school. Mind you, I was 18 at this point. So they had known each other 
over 20 years and they were not allowed to speak to each other. We ended up, she met somebody, decided to move to Houston, Texas. So off we went on the road. I was about eight, nine months pregnant. I remember throwing up in the car (laughs) because it was too bumpy. And I hear I was out pregnant and got down there, was sober through my whole pregnancy, had the baby, decided to go out with some friends that I had met, had a few drinks, and you're not going to believe this, got a little bit tipsy and smelled drugs next door. And because I had been sober so long, I thought I could handle it. So I went next door and I got what they call stuck and nobody knew where I was at and ended up staying there getting high again and fell right back down the rabbit hole. And so that's what I like to teach people who are in drug addiction and recovery. The main thing is that you never touch it again. It is not an open door. It is not something that you look at, think about. You ask God to give you, to always remind you, this is what I did. I said, God, I want you to always remind me of the consequences. If I ever get caught in a a conversation, because that's something we do. Oh my God, do you remember this time? Do you remember that time? And all of a sudden the desire comes back and all you do is remember the fun, but you never remember the consequences. And those were the things that I taught in that jail. You've got to ask God to remind you of the consequences. You know, so many of us lost children. I was not able to raise my oldest son because of drug addiction. Um, He's had to endure the same kind of life um, because my grandma raised him and he never had consequences. And so, yeah, went through a lot, went through a lot, you guys. So I'm in Houston. I'm using again. Um, My mother comes and finds me finally at that house and brings me home. She's yelling at me. She's angry at me. My son is crying. And once again, I'm in that place. You're stupid. You're never going to amount to anything. This is probably why your dad didn't love you. This is why you can never keep a relationship. You know, just horrible. I just felt horrible. And she's yelling at me, and I'm never good enough. And I took a half a bottle of Tylenol from Costco, the big, big bottle. And I downed every... It was about half full of the hugest bottle you can imagine of Tylenol. And I passed out on the couch. And my mother couldn't wake me up. You definitely serve you, you definitely serve as an axiom, um, a testimony to the I mean, just the indomitable human spirit. There's you just have been through so much. It's it's really impressive. And yeah. even if, you know, even religion aside, it's I I believe that the world works in mysterious ways and had you not gone down the path that you did I mean, imagine just just the consequence of you doing that. It saved your mom, too, because she was part of that the cult. And then your actions got her out of that. Funny enough, it, it's just, yeah. it, I think it's... You've, you've spoken several times about teaching women, and this is what I always teach people. Currently, after all of this that you went through, what's the, what's the current professional world look like for you? What do you do? So I've been in ministry. I love it. I love empowering and encouraging. Yeah, a lot changed after my divorce. Um, Now I don't shove Jesus, if you would, down people's throats. I want to know their stories. And what I teach now is more that they should see something in me that they want. And that's my open door to share with them why. Because I know that without him, I couldn't have made it through any of this. He carried me when I couldn't walk. He held me when I couldn't stand was telling you they ended up getting me to the hospital. They had to pump my stomach with charcoal. I was in ICU for, I think, three days. They said if I would have walked into the hospital an hour later, there would have been nothing they could have done. My liver would have shut down and it would have been a most painful death. 
So now not only have I gone through sex trafficking, molestation, a cult, you know, I can remember one night in the cult, my mother left me asleep and he called her to come to his house and she thought I was asleep. And I remember waking up and yelling for her and she wasn't there. So here I was mad at my stepdad for molesting me. He was an elder in the church. I had a lot of anger at God, a lot of anger. And he loved me anyways. He always was there for me. And he knew at some point I was going to love him back. And he was patient and he waited. And I remember thinking my mom chose these men over me. You know, this prophet, this, you know, stepdad that molested me. I just always felt like I was never good enough to be the one that was a priority in in all of their lives. They pumped my stomach full of charcoal and went through that. After the ICU, I ended up getting shipped back to California with my grandma, and she started helping me with my son, and I ended up using again. I tell drug addicts all the time, until you are genuinely sick and tired of being sick and tired, you're not going to change. And when you are done with it, you'll quit and God will deliver you. But it has to become your enemy and not your friend because God never delivered anybody from their friends, only their enemies. Absolutely. We are cutting close. I want to round out. Yeah, I want to round out with the the books, right? You have two books out now, correct? And you have another that's coming? Yes. So my one book is actually a devotional. It was when I was going through my divorce. And if you'll have me back, I'll finish the stories for you. You know that you're the first people I've ever released my whole story to. You're very brave for that. Thank you. And I want to get to that story. I think we can definitely set up a part two. Jake, what do you think? That was absolutely... Your tales are are so whimsical. Because you didn't even get to hear about Jamie Foxx or the the Wayans brothers or... (laughs) Or empty or hammer. <laughs> so let me let me round this yes. out real quick. Um, yes. For our listeners at home, we're not going to be able to do this all in one episode. We just don't have enough time. So we're going to come back for a part two. But until then, if our listeners want to find you or want to, you know, dive more into what you're all about, where can they find you? Um, I mostly do a lot on Facebook. So I'm a lot on Facebook. They can look me up. It's under Samantha Levy, L-E-V-Y. And then in parentheses, what sets me apart is my maiden name, Bailey Dash Davis. And you're an author. What's the name of your book? So if they go on Amazon, it's uh, you look under Samantha Levy, and um, it's called I Am With You. And it's actually a 365-day devotional and um, can be used in many different ways. You can open it up and just ask God for a word, and I can guarantee you it'll be exactly what you want to hear. It's the most amazing book. Or you can go day one, day two, day three and do it in order. Um, I did it like that purposely. Um, As a matter of fact, I've had people that use it for evangelism and they go out on the streets and ask people to give them a number from from 1 to 365. The people give them a number, they read that page, and it's exactly what the person needs to hear. So pretty powerful. The other book, so the first one is called I Am With You. The second book is called Valleys, Better Than the Mountaintops. And it's literally all of the valleys from the Old Testament. And uh, the Lord had me dig deep and go into the Hebrew meanings of each of the valley names. And he began to show me, which was just by revelation, he began to show me how the things that we go through in life are actually what establish us to be at the mountaintops. Um, So the valleys are actually better than the mountaintops because they teach us more. 
you can't really celebrate a victory without some defeat. But this book is all geared towards showing you, um, oh, it's kind of hard to explain, but like there was one that meant deer and I could not figure out how that could relate to today's, you know, time. And it, and he immediately said, as the deer pants for the water. And those are times and seasons that people go through where it feels like God is distant from you. But the, the chapter talks about he knows our human nature. And in that human nature, we can take for granted something that's there all the time. So he literally pulls back from us in certain seasons, not because we're being punished, not because it's the wrath of God, not because he's mad at us or hates us, but he pulls back from us so that we can long for him and yearn for him again, like the deer pants for the water. I will link the Amazon pages for both of those books in the description of the episode. And when I share it on social media, we'll make sure that your links are in there. Awesome. And I'll say this, we'll be doing a women's, probably two, maybe three women's retreats this year. I call them destination retreat because it's all about getting healing. It's all about camaraderie. It's all about gaining friends um, and being somewhere that's absolutely beautiful, like Destin Beach. We're looking at Lake Tahoe this in 2023 for fall. Um, so we'll probably do Nashville as well. Um, and it's just a time for women to get away and to be loved on. If I have any gift to give, it is the gift of love and acceptance and empowerment. They're definitely well worth it. We bring in somebody to cook for them the whole weekend. It's all inclusive. They don't lift a finger to do anything. They do team building and they get ministered to individually as well as as a group. It's just powerful. We will be in touch for part two. Look for that in January for the listeners. Samantha, thank you for your time. I know it's been hectic with the holidays and the weather and all of that. And we are so excited to get this episode out. I am too. And you guys are just precious. I hope I didn't talk too much. (laughs) No, I don't think you talked enough. We need you back. Samantha, before you go, before yes. you go, what is your favorite football team? My favorite football team? Yep. Ooh, I don't know if I have one, but I I would say Miami Dolphins because I met somebody who played for them, and so that was like very pivotal in my life because he gave me the empowerment to get through my divorce. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Football has no place in religion. No. So cut the shit. <laughs> That's what he said. No, That's what Jake said. Football has no place in religion. Yeah, but you football didn't ask has no me place what my favorite in religion. Basketball team was. We don't have time, Samantha. Oh, <laughs> but I'm just going to tell you, it's wherever my daughter plays. <laughs> uh, Samantha, before we before we go completely, can you just do one quote for me? Can you just quote this one thing, okay? Yeah. Can you say, Clay's mustache is better than Jake's? No, let's say it's, Samantha, you dealt with peer pressure your whole life. Don't cave now. Stay strong. <laughs> <laughs> stay strong, Samantha. How about this? I'll say this. All mustaches are wonderful, but beards are even better. <laughs> <laughs> until next time we'll see you in the next episode